Welcome to Cut the Chat, Life Science Insider. Episode 1, Smart KPIs for Biotechs. Cut the Chat is an informative podcast series designed to quite literally cut the unnecessary talk and get straight to the point and heart of many life science and biotech conversations that need to happen for our industry to evolve, innovate and get smarter, faster. We'll facilitate the conversations you've been dying to hear and tackle the real crux of our industry's challenges while addressing the subjects of what we can do as life science leaders to be more successful in a shorter period of time. Conversations that might actually help each other when we dare to open up. Today's episode is hosted by Seuss Plus co-founder and CEO Sabina Hutchison. She'll be joined by a very special guest. So let's get to it. Let's cut the chat. Well, Alan, welcome. You and I go way back to the days of MDS. That dates us, doesn't it? <laughs> Remember that? It certainly does. It certainly does, yeah. Yeah, I still have like lots of wonderful relationships from that company. So I'm happy that we've continued to see each other and to stay in touch since then. Alan, you've been in the industry for a very long time, 25 years. So lots of experience that you bring with us on this conversation today. And what I find interesting is that you've actually started in the financial side of the business. So your first positions were with AstraZeneca and GSK, but more on the, on the financial side. And then you moved into general management roles, worked for clinical research organizations, large CROs. You were the VP of Europe for Covance, which is now LabCorp president of Icon Clinical Research, and the list goes on. You've not only, what I find really interesting as well, is that you've worked with the larger organizations, but you've also worked for a lot of mid-sized companies and really helped to scale their businesses, looking at RPS, MDS, as we mentioned earlier, Quanticate, and lastly, working with Excelia, um, a really nice mid-sized CRO that you really helped grow and expand their businesses. But this is super interesting is that you not only work for the CROs, but you're also the founder and CEO of a, you were the founder, founder and CEO of a life science company, Concept Life Sciences, which is a discovery, chemistry, and toxicology business. So lots of experience you bring in. So I'm really curious to hear how you're going to bring all these insights into our conversation. Yeah. I would say lots of gray hair, but there's no hair. There's no hair left. It would it would have been gray, but uh, stubble, stubble. Uh, the stubble down. So, Alan, what's interesting is you're actually moving into a new phase of your career. You're working with a lot of organizations now, advising and consulting, working in the private equity space, continuing to support Excelli as a non-executive advisor, also working as a non-executive chairman for Gentronics Limited which is a genetic toxicology and early stage CRO, which is backed by private equity. And you're stepping into the tech space as an advisor for Nuva.di, which is a US-based AI tech company. Yeah, a portfolio of different things and you know, really exciting sort of next stage of my career for me. And Alan, on a personal note, I'm just, a, you know, I've always held you in very high regard. We've known each other through lots of different jobs, experiences, clients, <laughs> crazy yeah. travel, flights to companies. One of the things that I think I just value so much about you is that your strategic insights, you know, you always have the ability to keep the big picture focus and guide people through processes and the organizations that you've worked with. And I've been fortunate enough to work with you firsthand on some of that. So it's something that I really, really value about you. 
And what I'm excited about with this conversation is that I know that you're always genuinely honest and very authentic. Yep. And that continues to inspire me in all the conversations that we have. So I wanted to say thank you, first of all, that you have agreed and graciously accepted our invitation to be a guest on this upcoming launch of our podcast. Thanks for being part of this journey. Yep. Thank you very much for inviting me. As I say, We've worked together over a long, long, long time. You were very young. You were very young at the start. And recently, you know, Seuss has done some fabulous work to support me in different organizations over the years. And so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have this conversation. And actually really interesting to see how biotechs run their projects in a little bit of a different way than mid-sized farmer and larger farmer. It's, it's interesting when you get up and close and interact with biotechs, you see that their mindset is a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're here today, of course, is to look at that. You know, our industry is heavily regulated and we, we tend at times to fall into ruts in the way that we review and look at metrics. And that's what we want to talk about today, specifically for biotechs. So we want to talk, obviously, the importance of measuring, but how can we be smarter around measuring what truly matters, specifically in clinical trials? So that's going to be our focus today. And the significance of finding actually smart KPIs for biotechs. In some of the past conversations that we've had, biotechs can sometimes minimize or they overlook KPIs and metrics. Small, smaller, smaller companies where larger ones can potentially fall into the habit of what large pharma does when looking at overly implementing KPIs, maybe not so relevant to what they're doing and yep. would like to get some of your insights around that. Absolutely. And as you say, some of this is, you know, really recent, you know, I was CEO of Excelia, which is sort of 900 person CRO, you know, to the end of April. And as you say, I've moved into a non-executive role, but over the last three years of Excelia, which is a lot of biotech clients for its end-to-end -end services. Mm -hmm a lot of direct experience in terms of sitting with biotech management teams and looking at how to support them in their studies. But you know, a broader perspective over a number of years from mid-size and larger CROs as well. I just echo what you sort of you said there that in a sense there's a sort of there's there's almost two very distinct polarized approaches from biotech companies. I can think of a recent interaction with a really large biotech which has got I guess what you'd say is all of the characteristics of a large pharma company in terms of size of revenue base and a number of employees and, and, and global spread. And that really does feel like a very large pharma company where, you know, you collect and, and report to that, that business a book of metrics, which might run over six or seven pages, really detailed, what I would characterize as a lot of overlapping metrics in terms of when you're thinking about predictor metrics and outcome metrics, lots of outcome metrics, this is what it was. And honestly, you know, lots of CROs collect the metrics for large pharma companies and these sort of large biotechs because they're required to do so. And you sort of wonder, what that company actually does with that set of metrics, because there are so many points there that it, it must be really difficult to understand what are the key elements. And, and typically when you're going through like a governance discussion with the steering committee or, you know, the strategic committee or whatever's been formed to review the relationship in those perspectives, you end up focusing on one or two key metrics. So, you know, you've got a book and, and most of them are, are really thrown away. So, 
it's it's a reporting mechanism and to some extent i see that as part of the responsibility of the organization to show oversight over the cro that they're using for for gcp purposes and you know that certainly ticks that box but how effective is that in terms of being able to run a better study the flip side of that which you also alluded to is really on really small not quite virtual businesses but you know definitely businesses that are resource constrained when they're looking at setting up metrics basically have no agenda for metrics i mean so it's the opposite end of the spectrum and they're looking for well they're not sometimes they're not even looking for any of those metrics they're focused on what's the study budget and that is often a very hard number for them and similarly for academic sort of institutions similar to that that they're just very very focused on on the money element they've got a fixed amount of money to spend and maybe first patient in if that's linked to their funding requirements but that is really it and you know if, if in those circumstances you really do need to sit down with the with the customer and start to plan with them what are the critical points in their study for probably funding purposes and this is a big you know a big element of the challenge that maybe a biotech client has that a large pharma company doesn't have in the same way they need to be able to meet certain critical points for their investors and therefore actually teasing that out is a really important part of the sort of the initial phase of building a relationship with a small biotech client yeah absolutely and it's interesting you mentioned the first patient in i think that 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 i think that one is always at the top of the list isn't it often when you yep. when you think about pis for a project and i think it's interesting as well because a lot of the biotechs aren't necessarily looking and thinking about the commercial impacts which come later on, which could thinking about endpoints and some of these pieces that could also be very beneficial when starting your trial and not necessarily always just jumping into this first patient in. No, 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 absolutely. A vast array of possible metrics between, you know, signing the contract and getting to that first patient in around those time points. Honestly, the big challenge you know, be this biotech companies or mid-sized pharma or large pharma companies is around amendments to protocols. And protocol amendments are really crippling the the challenges, or it's a crippling challenge for, for the drug development industry in terms of cost and delay. And so, yes, you can get first patient in potentially pretty quickly, but if the trade-off of that is that you haven't done sufficient work to be able to really look at things like the potential changes to inclusion and exclusion criteria, then you get your first patient in, you suddenly work out that patient accrual is not working to the to the extent that you assumed it was going to, and that the may, maybe one of the reasons is exclusion exclusion criteria, and then you you decide client decides, not the CRO, but maybe with CRO advice, that you need to change something like inclusion exclusion criteria. And you've got to go through all of the challenges of ethics approval uh, to be able to, to, to move that forward. And and that's a, that there's a delay. So the rush to first patient in often is an investor-driven focus as opposed to an operational-driven focus. There is an element of operational-driven focus around that. But you know, if, if you could wave your magic wand and say, how could you actually dramatically improve the outcome, both in terms of the endpoint of, of cost and the endpoint of time, then I would say investing upfront 
in a really robust process to ensure that you minimize protocol amendments has got to pay off because you just see time after time after time the challenges of protocol amendments. And and it's almost like, you know, as a groundhog day, the industry is not learning that this is this is a big problem. It's a big problem for time, it's a big problem for for money, and it's a big problem for patient adherence in terms of trials as trials get ex- extended and the risk of patient dropouts in the marketplace. So, you know, I think, you know, we've talked in other circles around, you know, the role of the investigator meeting, for example, in terms of let's say training investigators to be able to, you know, deliver the the, the study protocol in a way that the protocol describes. And often for smaller biotech companies, there is maybe one key opinion leader who's really been the pivotal person who's um, input to, to that protocol. What I would suggest and do suggest to, to, to customers is that they really, you know, take a bit of time and challenge that and actually look for critical challenge around the protocol, you know, in a nice way. Obviously, you've got to keep your principal investigator on board. They're a really important person to that. But really to pressure test all of the, you know, maybe the logistical elements of running the trial to be able to drive that patient adherence to to, to the protocol. Honestly, you'd be better spending an additional few weeks at the very start making sure you really robustly tested the protocol. You'd looked in a very scientific way around similar protocols that have been run by other organizations and tried to ascertain what the challenges might have been for those organizations and invest upfront around that. And that you see actually quite a lot of pushback when you talk to customers around that because they're focused around first patient in. And, you know, we get on around the country selection and the site selection around that, but that rush to first patient in potentially has consequences in other elements of the trial which really have a fundamental impact in terms of success of that trial. Yeah, absolutely. We see it, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, during a vendor selection process or when a request comes over, often we just have a synopsis, and that synopsis is also not complete at that point. We're basing a request to a CRO on a synopsis, and there's so much still potentially missing, and you're absolutely right. Then we have to revisit again once the protocol gets a little bit further, but then the budget is again impacted again. So if you look at the timing, I think that that is just such a valid point. Look at the protocol, spend the time, and you're right with the key opinion leaders, but also their patient advocacy. There's so much available for the organizations to tap into to really, and the idea of pressure testing is is so valuable because it actually, in the long run, your patient or patient could be even faster um, if if the protocols of the strong position. Yeah, I mean the point about patient advocacy groups is really important because more recent changes to ICHGCP require you more specifically to consider the voice of the patient in terms of the trial design as a more explicit requirement at this point in time. And, you know, that's healthy from a number of perspectives, but specifically when you think about the challenges of patient adherence to a protocol, it's really, really important that you get the voice of the patient reflected in that trial design. Honestly, there's a vast industry of specific service providers has grown up in the last seven or eight years around more specialist providers to keep patients engaged in trials. And there's a reason for that because there's so much dropout of of patients in trials and it's so expensive 
such a waste to do that. So again, that comes down to a really thoughtful approach around the study design, which is not simply, you know, the mechanics of the action of the drug, but the whole impact of the patient and the whole ecosystem. How are you going to deliver that study, the logistics of how to deliver the study? And you really got to consider the complete package of what needs to be done to be able to really deliver in an efficient way the study. And again, you know, that's an element that both smaller biotechs and, you know, maybe some smaller CROs don't necessarily fully embrace as they're thinking about that vendor selection process, the pitch process in terms of trying to present your credentials to a customer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an interesting point that you mentioned earlier, when you look at the biotechs and the drivers, they obviously have drivers from investors. And one of those key pieces is first patient in. So how can biotechs, how can the, the, the leadership team actually push back to their investors and kind of change the mindsets around this KPI? Yeah. I mean, I think it is difficult. I um, certainly don't diminish the challenges of that because first patient in has become such a focus. I think it is around though, when you look at the metrics around the number of protocol amendments in a trial, I mean, you know, data speaks here. So you can actually pull up the data to show the average number of protocol amendments in certain therapeutic areas. So that data, you, you know, you can find and you can present. And so actually bringing home the risk of protocol amendments is a really important part of that challenge. But there are other pieces here. When you actually look at, for example, the data around submissions to, let's say, the FDA submissions at this point in time, you're really talking about maybe 50% of submissions get approved with no questions from the regulators coming back. If you're getting regulator questions, then the average delay time of a regulator question from the FDA is, is close to a year. So it's a massive delay in terms of data. So there's some there's some very specific points that really talk about the importance of, let's call it quality metrics for those delay pieces. I would point people to apply clinical trials. There's a really interesting article that has been published by Avoca and Pfizer around quality metrics, which listeners to the podcast, I would suggest go and look at that. It's just focused on the quality metrics around clinical trials. But as you think about the risk of delay from regulators because of the quality of the data in your submission, that's another reason why you've got to be really, really focused around making sure that you don't rush just to get one metric right, the first patient in metric, because ultimately the only metric that's really going to be valuable to you is an approval metric, you know, and you don't want questions coming back from a regulator. You need to effectively be approved first time or you're potentially waiting another year for your submission. So I think as you you try to to discuss with, and I say the, the primary stakeholder group here is, is financial investors. To some extent, it might be your own management team, but I think they're easier probably to bring into the fold and let them understand the importance of a holistic approach to looking at your set of metrics. But for, you know, hardened bankers in the in the financial markets, you need to go with them with some data to make sure that they understand that. And I understand that that's probably a, a little bit of an uphill push for CEOs and chief medical officers to be able to make that pitch. But, you know, when you think about, you know, 
some of the let's call it shortcuts that you might be tempted to to take to get that first patient in you might you know select a particular country for example to be able to get to a really fast approval fast ethics all your CROs will will quote you which countries you can get to fastest ultimately when you're opening up a country to run a clinical study if you only get one patient out of that country that's a massive inefficient approach so you've really got to think about the sustainability of country and site selection and just because you might be able to get i don't know australia you know at random australia up faster than france if ultimately you're in a particular disease area and there aren't so many patients in australia then that's a very costly first patient in and you'd be better waiting and actually picking a country that's got us that's got a sufficient patient population to be able to to deliver your trial because honestly the days for any company whether it's a biotech or a large pharma company the days of of having you know additional countries in particular country selection additional countries lots of backup countries in your trial is a really expensive way of running your trials and actually you know the smarter players are looking at the minimum country selection necessary to be able to deliver the right number of patients in the in the timeline to be able to do that so again that's another reason why don't be too blinded by that first patient in focus think about the whole patient accrual process which alan to your point actually extends extends the time again yeah. you know looking at bringing in one patient in one country to your point the trial is going to be delayed and, and think about the cost implications around that as well having to open up new countries so very valid point yeah i should give a shout out to somebody we both worked with a long time ago in in icon malcolm burgess who who was retired from the clinical marketplace at this point and remember having multiple discussions with him about first patient in ironically and his point he was head of data management at one point for icom was really around it's about database points locked that you should be focused on and how do you get those data points locked in your database and that's a really really focus metrics for for CROs to look at because you go through that whole data cleaning process and you really focus on making sure that you're focused on what data points you've got locked into your database but on the country selection piece I'd just like to make another point about that because I think again when biotechs in particular are talking to CRO partners CROs by and large for a biotech you know you tend to see an alignment of size and you tend to see biotechs wanting to work with smaller or mid-sized CROs and there's lots of really really positive reasons why they might want to do that it's a lot around cultural fit it's a lot around management attention and and obviously experience you know so the the smaller CROs and the mid-sized CROs have got a lot of experience of working with smaller biotechs that have maybe not got complete complements of staff and they have to fill in and juggle work. Many CROs, however, in that category have got incomplete service lines in respect of potentially country distribution, potentially some services, and then the whole raft of services to support the broader requirement for, for bigger endpoints that exist today that didn't exist before. So we're thinking about you know, central laboratory, logistics, we're talking about the whole supply chain to be able to get investigational product into markets, and as well as all of the specialist sort of device support that you might need to particular procedures in a, in a trial. 
And I think the challenge for some of the mid-sized sector in terms of the CRO sector is all of that is outsourced to multiple vendors or other vendors. And so the CRO themselves don't necessarily have the experience in-house to really understand the challenges of that broader supply chain. I've recently been talking to a client, we picked up a rescue client who studies on hold because they ran out of investigational product, you know. And so, you know, the CRO had not taken, previous CRO had not taken any account of that. And all of a sudden, you know, everything is on hold because there's an element of this process that hasn't been looked at. So even if you're if your CRO is outsourcing elements of the study, and obviously they're going to have to for specialist things like investigational product, they still need to be taking a project management perspective in terms of looking at a full end-to-end solution for, for the client. Because unlike a big pharma company, many biotech clients don't have that in-house capability to really to do that. So I think there's another element of the difference for a, for a biotech that when your CRO presents a set of metrics to you, the tendency in many CROs will be to present metrics that are in the direct control of the CRO in itself and not necessarily look at the bigger picture of what the client is going to need to look at. You know, one of the things going back to the points that you mentioned around data, which is just so important and having clean data, you know, one of the things that we know that when biotechs are being assessed or potentially being looked at being acquired in the future, that's what's going to be looked at and have an impact on in the due diligence process, not necessarily first patient in, but the quality of the data at the end. Yeah, there's always trade-offs here. And so here's a really interesting sort of, I guess, uh, perspective. Large pharma companies today, top five pharma companies, are going through a very explicit exercise of trying to limit the number of endpoints in their trials because they recognize, you know, you've got committee on committee on committee on committee and you're trying to, you know, this is large pharma. We'll come back to biotech in a second. Large pharma really trying to be able to cover every conceivable use of that data uh, with a view to getting as broad uh, a label as possible. And, but what we see very clearly, and not only from my Accelerate experience, but previous sort of stats-focused experience at Quanticate and elsewhere, that there's a real challenge for that because coming back to the whole challenge of clinical development, if your protocol is too complicated, then the chances are, A, it may not get through ethics approval because you're trying to collect data points which aren't relevant and necessary for the study design. So you have a risk for ethics approval. But even if you get through that ethics and it's data that potentially you don't need in order to be able to get a really defendable experiment and hypothesis approved to get your drug approved, you're risking potentially extending the trial or getting other data points that could cause issues to you, other ramifications and delays. And so Big Pharma is learning that lesson. And you know, there's a couple that I know of specifically have actually got an absolute number of data points for their trials that they're pushing those down. I shouldn't necessarily name them. But when you look at the biotechs, again, as you say, a lot of them attempted to think about that same element. They yes, they want their drug approved, and yes, they want their, you know, potentially to be able to trade that drug on after phase two, potentially. And so they're thinking about let's collect this piece of data, let's collect that piece of data. The reality is the more data you collect, uh, yes, you increase the possibility of being able to excite potentially new investors or other 
drive of the drug. But you also run the risk of complicating your study, delaying your study, and increasing the cost of your study. So there's a balance between getting a really tight data set necessary to be able to secure approval, which on the face of it, that would be where my starting point would be, versus what other data can we legitimately collect within the confines of the ethical approval of that drug that doesn't have a lot of ramifications in terms of complexity around endpoints and study design. So if you need to put an additional, I don't know, piece of spirometry onto your study or 24-hour urine collection, you know, there's all sorts of things that people will throw into this that run the risk of patient non-adherence. And dropout of patients, you know, is a really big challenge. And so if you throw in unnecessary procedures that have, you know, particularly things like 24-hour urine collection, then honestly, you know, you're putting yourself at risk in terms of the complexity of the study. So one of the core metrics I know for a top 10 pharma company is endpoints, and it's a physical limit on endpoints on studies. I would say that's hard to, you know, set that for smaller companies, but you really need to think about really tight design and then moving away from that, going out carefully and keeping it. And clearly, biotechs don't necessarily have all of the committees on or committees that run the same risk that large pharma companies do, but they do have a commercial awareness to say, we might want to do other things with this data. My counsel would be stick to what you really need to get your study approved, because that's the thing that's going to be the most value to you. And then a few additional data points around that, providing they don't have a negative ramification for patient adherence to the study, maybe you can consider those. Thanks, Alan. Well, as I knew, we would not struggle to fill a 30, 40 minutes worth of a conversation. So thanks so much. And as we wrap up this discussion around smart KPIs for biotechs, if you were to give three tips to the leadership team of a biotech when they're about to set off and set their KPIs for the next clinical trial, what would those three tips be? I think the first thing to say is that the thing that's going to damage you really, really significantly are protocol amendments and that you've really got to focus on the design of your trial to minimize protocol amendments, even if that takes longer, because that's the thing that's going to be a strong backbone to the delivery of your study. So really think about that and pressure test, even if you've got, you know, the best investigator in the world, pressure test, not just from a medical perspective, but from a whole logistical perspective and a patient adherence perspective, that protocol. The link to that is around the, the voice of the patient in terms of that protocol, because you are now required under ICHGCP to be able to take a more explicit input from the patient. And it, it's really important to be able to think about patient adherence and patient advocacy groups in particular are really where you need to focus at this point in time. And the best CROs have been spending the last, you know, three years or so really building relationships with those patient advocacy groups. And you will tell that from your vendor selection because they will know those areas. We've talked a lot about first patient in and the myopic approach to first patient in in a lot of biotechs. And I do appreciate it's a challenge for financial investors of being very focused about first patient in. But again, don't get trapped into first patient in as your primary metric without thinking about the other elements of that because you can get first patient in, but it's the second or third 
and the hundredth patient, which you've got to be thinking about because until you've got the requisite number of patients in your study, you're not going to have a statistically significant population to be able to make your submission. And the last point, I've probably gone over your three. <laughs> the last point is really think about the quality metrics. And I said, I pointed in the, in the podcast to that applied clinical trials article between Pfizer and Avoca, because I think that's a really interesting example around that, because if you submit data that's of poor quality and you get referrals from the regulatory agencies, then yeah, you may be able to get that, you know, that those cleared up. Probably about 60 or 70% of those referrals are cleared up, but they're cleared up after a period of time, which is really, really expensive to you. So you've got to bake the quality metrics into that. And again, don't lose focus on those. It's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we we are a regulated industry, so (laughs) very key. Well, Alan, thanks so much. As always, a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. And um, yeah, I guess I wish you a good weekend as we're on this Friday. No, no, thank you. I really, really, really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, really enjoyed talking to you today. And as I say, some really, really important things for, for the industry to think about. And there is some challenge here to really think about doing a bit more work up front, being really thoughtful around it. And you say, Big Pharma has benefits and challenges that are different from biotechs, but some of the same things are still there. So that issue around endpoints is the same challenge for both. It's come about from maybe a different source, but it is the same point. Absolutely. Tighter endpoints, faster trials. That's the word of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alan. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care and see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Cut the Chat, Life Science Insider. Smart KPIs for biotechs. Make sure you're following Seuss Plus on LinkedIn and be the first to know about upcoming podcasts. See you again soon.